How many of you in this room have ever seen the show Shark Tank? Raise your hand. Anybody? All right. Shark Tank is one of my favorite shows. I watch it every Friday, if not the next day. And if you don't know what Shark Tank is, let me explain it. Shark Tank is a show where hopeful entrepreneurs go into this place called the Shark Tank, and they have to stand in front of sharks, also known as multi-multi-millionaires, and they have to pitch the sharks to invest in their product. It is very, very intense, and oftentimes they get no's, and that's really, really hard for them. But it's one of those shows that is an incredible opportunity for people who want to sell a product or be an entrepreneur to go in front of the whole country and pitch that. Well, in this show, these sharks ask him lots of questions. And one of the questions that they oftentimes ask an entrepreneur is, what is your exit strategy? What is that strategy that you have in mind if something were to go good or something were to go wrong in your company? So, for instance, they're asking to know, hey, if things are going well, what's your strategy? How are you going to get out? How are you going to sell the company to another company, and you're going to make a lot of money, and I'm going to make a lot of money? But the exit strategy is also to mitigate losses. They want to know if things are not going well, how are you going to get out? More importantly, how am I going to get out and not have to lose a lot of money? An exit strategy. Now, I was thinking about this not just in business, but I was thinking about this in relationships. A lot of us, when we approach relationships, we approach it with it having an exit strategy in mind. And what I mean by that is if someone doesn't live up to our expectations or we don't like them anymore or they disappoint us, then eventually we can enact this exit strategy and say goodbye to them and then go on. If you don't believe that this doesn't happen, let me give you a couple examples. For instance, in the church, there are people that have left the chapel. I'm not trying to be mean. This is just true. They didn't like the worship songs. I have an exit strategy. I'm going to go to this church because I like their worship. Or maybe Todd and I together with our pastors make a decision and they're like, oh, that's not exactly what I wanted. I'm going to go find a church that fits my needs. They enact an exit strategy. We do this in friendships. There's somebody that we don't like anymore. Or they disappointed me. Or they didn't care enough for me. Or whatever it is. And instead of working that out, what do we do? We say, I don't want to be friends with them anymore. That happens all the time. We're not conscious of it. We don't go into a friendship looking for an exit strategy. But we oftentimes will deploy it if we have to. That happens in marriage. I get to do a lot of marriage counseling before I end up marrying couples and a lot of times they come in and they're so in love and I have to tell them the reality of marriage. <laughs> but at the same time, there are people that come in and I can tell that they're in it for life, hopefully. If not, if their partner disappoints them and they're not really happy in the marriage, then I can just see it in their eyes that they want to say, hey, at least I have an out. Again, you don't go into marriage or a friendship or a church relationship, even to a business relationship, thinking that will happen, but in the back of our minds, either with somebody else or within ourselves, we know that an exit strategy could be enforced and that we could leave. Now apply that to a relationship with God. How many of us think God could do the same thing to us? 
I mean, think about it. When God gets to know the real us, do we ever wonder, God, after a while, are you going to get sick of me because I'm not performing well, or I'm not reading the Bible enough, or I'm not praying enough, or I'm not coming to church enough, or I'm not working hard enough as a good Christian? Are you going to get mad at me and then sometimes say, hey, I'm going to cut off the relationship and mitigate the loss, and I'm going to go on. I think in the back of our minds, a lot of times we believe that God could do that with us based upon how we live our lives. That's why we've been in this book called Gentle and Lowly. This is the last week we're looking at this book. This book has been an incredible opportunity to learn the heart of God, to see not only does God love us, but he likes us. And as we end our time today, I want to look at a question that I think is in the back of our minds, even though we may not be conscious of it. And I want to answer it once and for all so you and I can have the security that God wants us to have in our relationship with him. And again, this question I want to see answered today is how can, it should say we, how can we be sure that God will not give up on us? How can we make sure from the time we say yes to following Jesus to the time that we die, that no matter what we do or how we live, no matter if we read the Bible all the time or not, if it's not based on our performance, then how can we make sure that God's not going to give up on us? How can we make sure he's not going to enact an exit strategy in our relationship? So to answer that question, I want to turn to a passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at almost our entire time today. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. If you have your phones, look it up on your phone. If not, open your Bibles, Romans chapter 5. Now the first four chapters of Romans, Paul is writing to these Greco-Roman people who are beginning to follow Jesus. And he's telling them all about what Jesus has done for them. It's an incredible theological treaty on what he's done for all people. And then you get to Romans chapter 5. The first five verses, Paul is like, look, You don't understand the blessings of God. You need to rejoice in all the blessings God has given you. And then in the next few verses, Paul is going to try to encourage and almost convince these believers about what God has done for them on the cross and beyond. So open your Bibles to Romans 5, and we're going to look at Romans 5, 6 through 11, and we'll begin in verse 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I want you to imagine a time when you or someone on your behalf went over the top, did something to you that just blew your mind, that was beyond expectations. Think of a time that you did that for somebody or someone did that for you. I remember when we were living in Grand Rapids, uh, my wife and I were going through a really difficult time. Hudson started just to have seizures, and we were away from our family, away from our friends, and it was just a really, really difficult time. And I remember one time opening the mail, and there was this card. And this card was from our dear friends in Sandusky at the time. And we opened this card, and it had a check in it. And the card essentially said, we're going to send you money every month for the next six months. 
but we don't want you to use it for medical bills or school expenses, because I was in seminary at the time. We want you to use this money, and we want you and Paula to go have fun. Whether that's to buy books, because that's what I do because I'm a nerd, or uh, drink coffee, or go on dates, or have a family dinner. We have to use it just to have fun, just to take our mind off of what we were going through. That is over the top. That was unexpected. That was something that just blew my mind that 10 years later, I still remember. What's something that someone did for you or you did for them that was over the top, that was unexpected? Maybe you threw your spouse or your best friend or somebody that you really care about a a surprise party or you got them a gift that they couldn't believe that you gave them. Maybe it was somebody going through a hard time and you knew financially they needed money and so you dropped money off to them anonymously and really blessed their situation. What is that thing for you? Now let me ask you, why did you do it? Or why did you think they did it for you? Well, it's an easy answer. They love you. They care about you. They want to be in the journey with you. Okay, so now I want you to think of it this way. Would you have done the same thing for someone that you despise? Would you have thought, hey, I need to invest a lot of money and time and throw a surprise birthday party for my (laughs) ex-spouse? You know that person who teases me relentlessly at work or someone that just is against me? I want to bless them with this huge gift. Would you do that? Probably not. Now, aren't you glad our God is not like us? Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at us in the same way? That, of course, he would want to go over the top for those who love him. But what about those who don't? What about those who are on the opposite side of a relationship with God? What if he did something for them, for us? Again, I want to look at Romans 5, 6 through 7 with you. He says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. Now, Paul is appealing to common Greco-Roman logic. And honestly, it's the same logic that he would appeal to us today, too. He's talking about someone dying for somebody else, and he's like, look, that doesn't happen every day. And back then, it would have happened even less than it happens now. And Paul is saying, if it were to happen, if someone were to die for somebody else, then it was probably an extreme circumstance, and it had to be for somebody who the person truly loved, like a child or a parent or a best friend or somebody that they would do that for. Otherwise, no one is going to give up their life for somebody else. Now, if that's logical, which I think we all agree would even 2,000 years later, then what do you do with this? But God, anytime you see that in the Bible, just circle it because you're about to be grace-bombed. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Someone might die for somebody amazing, 
But Paul says here and in the verses to come that God sent Jesus to die for people who were sinners, who were ungodly, and who were his enemy. A story or a movie that you and I like oftentimes has a fairy tale ending. The good guy is oftentimes losing the whole time until something happens, and then the good guy ends up defeating the bad guy in the end. It's every superhero movie. It's every novel that we read. But in this case, the good guy dies for the bad guy. That is not found oftentimes in movies or books. It's illogical. Unless it's true. I mean, who would make something up that the good guy, the perfect guy, would die for his enemy, for the ungodly, for the sinner, for the person who wants nothing to do for God? And yet, it's our God who does that for us. He does for us what we can never do for ourselves. And he doesn't do it because we're good, because Scripture's clear, none of us are good. He does it to show how deep his love is for us. I love what Dane Ortland says in the book. He says, the Greek word for shows here means to commend demonstrably, to hold forth, to bring into clear view, to put beyond question what. What is he showing us here? In Christ's death, God is confronting our dark thoughts that divine love must have an endpoint, a limit. A point which never runs dry. In other words, God does not have an exit plan. There isn't a time in your life where God looks at you and says, okay, I've given you my all. You're not accepting that because of how you're living. Therefore, I'm going to get off the road now. I'm going to take an exit here and you just keep going. God doesn't do that. His love for us, the good guy dying for the bad guy, is for you and I because we couldn't do it in our own strength. We couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't build a ladder and make a way to God. God had to make a way to us. And when Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, while we were the ungodly, while we are his enemies, he's proving that his love is deeper and wider and greater and more profound and more undeserving than you and I can ever fathom. Now, that is true. And theologically, I can wrap my mind around that. But along the way, my heart oftentimes betrays my mind. Do you ever have that? Where you know this is true. You just know it. You have the proof that you need, but experientially, you're like, I don't know. Like, I don't feel that. And when it comes to this truth, theologically, I know what the Bible says, but in my heart, I don't always feel what the Bible says. What I mean by that is, I'm just telling you, there are times where I'll be just walking around in life and I'm thinking to myself, does God really know me? I mean, does he really know my thoughts? I mean, all my thoughts and all of my actions behind closed doors and all of the ways that I want to live my life, even though I may not, just these, the way that I'm thinking is just like, holy smokes, God, do you really know me? Because if you did, how can you not give up on me? Like, I, inside, I'm still not the godly person that I want to be. I mean, how can you truly love me? Convince not just my mind, that, but my heart. 
How do I know for sure in my heart that you won't give up on me? And I think Paul knows that we're going to ask that question. Because look what the next few verses say right after verse 8. Look at verses 9 and 11 with me. 9 through 11. And since, since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us. And that, can, that means in the Greek, continue to save us. Meaning he will not give up on us. That's what that means. He saves us when we say yes to Jesus and will continue to protect our salvation until the end. He will certainly save us from condemnation. And then verse 10 is almost the same thing. And since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved and continue to be saved through the life of his son. So now, we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Now for the next few moments, I want to keep this passage on the screen, and I want you to read it, and I want you to think of the top three words in this passage. If I said, hey, tell me what the most profound, the most important words of this passage, what would you say they are? So just take a few moments and read it. What would you say? Say it out loud. I want to hear you. you Got to say it louder. I, have, I can't hear up here. Yeah, say it even louder. Saved, restored, friends, rejoice. No one said Jesus? Hello, Jesus! <laughs> oh, he said it way back there. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Who said since? One person. What if I told you that's one of the most important words in this whole passage? And since, since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will continue, certainly continue to save us. Since, in verse 10, while we were still his enemies, since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, he will certainly continue to save us. Here is why this word since is so critical for our hearts. If Jesus died and saved us while we were still sinners, still enemies, still ungodly, if he was willing to do that then, how much more will he continue to show us his love now that we are his friends? I mean, think about it in our relationships. The more we fall in love with somebody, the more we grow deeper with them in friendship, how much more will we do for them? Since Jesus did this for us then, how much more will he do for us now? Dave Norton puts it a little more, more bluntly than I would. He says this, if God did that back then, when you were really screwy and had zero interest in him, then what are you worried about now? The people who I think should have been worried would have been the disciples. 
I mean, think about it. Jesus, he's journeying with these 12 men for all day and every day for three years. And when you read the, the, the Gospels, you see how screwy these guys are. I mean, listen to this. Jesus just gets done telling them that they're, he is going to die. Two of his disciples are walking along, asking each other, fighting over who is going to have the greatest position in his kingdom. Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to go through this horrible time. And they want to live and they want to be powerful. Hello? They didn't get it. Or there was a time where they were trying to help this dad who had this son, who had this condition, and they're trying to help, trying to help, trying to help, and they can't do it. Jesus comes along, heals the boy, and the disciples say, why couldn't we do that? He's like, because you didn't pray about it. You try to do it in your own strength. How much more do I have to tell you that this whole prayer thing works? You should try it. I mean, along the way, these disciples were fickle. They betrayed Jesus at the darkest moment in history when Jesus is being crucified. Where are the disciples? They're hiding. And yet Jesus, though they were fickle and doubters, they still sinned, they were still prideful, they were still all about their own kingdom. Never, ever gave up on them. In fact, when you start to read John, and you start in John 13, which is the beginning of the final discourse, which means it's Jesus' last days before he dies, and you read about what Jesus did, look how John 13, verse 1, explains this love for his disciples. This is unbelievable. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. Also known as Jesus knew he was about to be handed over and crucified. He, Jesus, had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and he loved them till the very end. Until the very end. Just like a spouse who stands on a stage like this and vows to the other spouse, no matter what you do, I will uphold my vows. I am in it for you, with you, to the end. To that spouse who upholds that vow to the end is identical to what Jesus upholds when he vows to his disciples to journey with them and love them till his very end. In sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, till death do us part. And if Jesus did that for these screwy, messed up, oftentimes sinful, arrogant, wishy-washy disciples, he's going to do the same thing for you and me. Despite our fickleness, despite our sin, despite all the ways that we fail God morally, despite how we treat others, Jesus will love us until the very end. You see, six weeks ago, we started this journey of this book. And I want to remind you why we did it. We did it because a lot of us have the wrong view of God. Biblically, it says something about God, but along the way, we have picked up another version of who God is. 
And that's because we look at God through the lens of how we treat others. So we only like certain people. We believe God only likes certain people. We love people, but to a limit. So then we put that on God and say, God loves people, but up to a limit. We look to an, an act, an exit strategy whenever we feel like we want to get out of a relationship. So too, God must. And that's why people don't come to church. Two reasons why. One is because Christians don't act like Christians. And people see Christians and then they don't want to go to their church because they're not acting in accordance to what the Bible says. That's one. Hypocritical. Christians. The second is our view of God. Our view of God dictates how we live and how we view God and how we view others. And if we believe God is some conditional person who's wishy-washy with us, then of course we're going to waver in our faith. But through this book and through the scriptures, we have learned that our God and his love is a whole different love, another kind of love that you and I can't give to others because it's a godly kind of love. It's a love that promises us that Jesus will always be with us and always for us. That Jesus meets us in our sinfulness and our brokenness. That Jesus is our faithful friend and companion. That the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside of us as our advocate. That God's ways, though they don't always make sense to us, are always best for us in the end. And like we looked at today, God will never, ever, Give up on you. So what should our response be in light of who this God is? How do we live our life in gratitude to this God who loves us this way? Let me leave you with these parting words from Dane Ortland. What's the meaning of everything? What's the aim, the goal for our small, ordinary lives? It's to glorify God. After all, what else is there? How can I not live to glorify God, to bring honor to his name in light of all that he has done for me? If you want to know your purpose in life, it's not job to job or moving here or moving there. You will never find happiness. Your purpose, if you want to unlock that, is to live your life for God's glory. Everything you do in your job, as a parent, as a spouse, whatever you do, it's to glorify God. And you will never, ever be empty if you do that. And when we do that, I just love what Dana Ortland says. We are pieces of art designed to be beautiful and thus draw attention to our artist. When you look at a picture someone drew or painted or sculpted and you are mesmerized by how beautiful it is, what is your first question? Who did this? Who wrote this? Who sang this? Who painted this? Imagine our world looking at your life, a light in the darkness, and wanting to know who is the one who created you. You and I have that opportunity to do it. Will you do it in light of all God has done for you? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for me. I take that for granted so often. I get so used to the gospel. But the gospel is that you died for me when I did not deserve it. While I was in the pit. While I was ungodly. While I still had my hand up pushing you away. You still died for me. And now, because of that, you call me friend. Promising me because of that title alone as friend and child. You'll never abandon me. You'll never give up on me. You'll never give up on us. Cement that, Lord, not in my brain, but 
also, but in my heart, so I can live for you. Praise in your name. Amen.